Welcome back to the Theology of the Buddy podcast, a podcast for Catholics who love tradition and want more of it. This is episode 41. My name is Chris, and I'm joined by my magnanimous co-host, Michael Strauss. How's it going, man? That's very generous of you. (laughs) (laughs) How are you, my friend? Doing great. Yeah. Back to... uh do another podcast and discuss uh, our favorite topic, <laughs> the liturgy. Halo. Wait. <laughs> oh. Uh, the process of getting halos. The, yeah. 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 Or the process of getting a perfection on Guardian in Halo 3. Yeah. The uh, way of perfection, you might call it. (laughs) (laughs) If anybody who's played Halo, they'll understand. If you don't, we'll just say it's almost as difficult as getting a real Halo. Well, for me. Depends on who you're playing against. (laughs) (laughs) Too funny. Too funny. (laughs) So... Uh, in this podcast, we're continuing our uh, response to the two Catholic dudes uh, who had a uh, podcast discussing the Novus Ordo and the traditional Latin Mass. Um, they claim it's a both and thing as a Catholic. And uh, yeah, we're responding to that. So if you haven't heard that, we recommend you go back one episode, you can find it at theologyofthebuddy.com, uh, or you can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever, and listen to that. That's episode 40. Yeah. So we addressed some of the points in their video in our last podcast, and we're kind of going through some of the big ones that we didn't get to because there's really a lot to talk about. And just to reiterate, we're trying to be... Um, very uh, constructive in our <laughs> uh, any criticism there is. We're really trying to just bring the trad perspective to it because these guys, um, you know, they set out to kind of respond to some things people were saying online. Some people are trolling and being haters as always, and people are making lots of memes and. As I said in the last episode, don't take this as a uh, attack on the the uh, two Catholic dudes, but they haven't been to the Latin Mass before and they don't know much about it. That wasn't really the point of their podcast to <laughs> research the Latin Mass or anything, but uh, they talked a lot about it and we thought it a lot of the things they're talking about could really use um, some trad perspective. Mm-hmm. We talked in the last episode about how we've both been on a long journey to our current um, place where we are in in the faith and going to the traditional Latin mass. And we have, uh, or past selves of us especially, had a lot in common with these two guys. So here we are, and we're going to speak to perhaps the most personal and the most emotional issue in uh, their podcast, which is the topic of liturgical music. 
And for us, it was really emotional too. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we were both um, music ministers and we loved it. We, uh, you know, God worked through us in that too. And we talked a lot about this in the last episode in our, our story. So I don't want to repeat everything, but I think we, we understand a lot of the emotion. So we'll, uh, try extra hard to make our points without, um, making them want to kill us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Maybe what do you um, think, Chris? Yeah. Maybe, uh, to, to begin, I can, I can share a little story. So I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, the recent release of a Christian rapper by the name of John Rubin and he's named his newest EP release greatest Christian rapper ever. And, uh, I got to tell you, have you listened to it yet, Mike? No, not at all. Have you ever listened to John Rubin? Uh, I think I have, but not a lot. Okay. So I grew up like listening to John Rubin and, uh, it this this little ep that he released i thought was absolute gold and uh one of my favorite lines in there's a song called secular music and he he says in the the song and i was always there for you when you couldn't listen to secular music secular music and <laughs> i I, and it's true. Great. <laughs> it's true. And so when he when he said greatest Christian rapper ever, I I had to admit that he was right. He is, and I, as a former Christian rapper, uh, am conceding the crown to him. Whoa, I, whoa, whoa! Yeah, hold the phone, yes. former Christian rapper. Yes, I don't know. Trad if Catholic Chris. Yeah. And not wow. only, not only Christian rapper, but wait for it, liturgical rapper. That's right, you heard it here, folks. Liturgical rapper. Uh, Boo! But hold on, hold on. <laughs> it was it was to the Psalms. Okay, it was a responsorial psalm, and it was very popular. People really liked it. Yep. You might call and- it. You might call it religious popular music you could absolutely and i have to admit while we're doing confessions live on the podcast (laughs) um i wasn't there at this mass but i distinctly remember when chris um told me about this psalm that he rapped to at mass my response at the time was like Oh man, that's the coolest thing ever. <laughs> like we should totally do that again. Yeah. And you know who you know who inspired it? You know who inspired it? Um Father Stan Fortuna. Right? Oh <laughs> greatest <laughs> priestly rapper ever. <laughs> you know? Um yeah. yeah. Not a lot of competition for that, but yeah. 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 So well. I don't know. Maybe I'd take that back. Father Pontifex is, he's pretty good in terms of, in terms of rap, but, um, 
Yeah. Anyway, so it was inspired by Father Stan, a, a rap that Father Stan had done in his, what was it, Sacro Songs? Sacro Songs mm-hmm. 2, because uh, he couldn't come up with a better title, apparently. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sacro Songs 2, Sacro Song Harder. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah yeah anyway um but that's the thing you know i i rapped a psalm and the entire congregation loved it and uh the powers that be uh that were helping me musically uh in that parish they thought it was a, a beautiful thing too and uh I'll be honest with you. I'm, I'm still to this day, like I still deal with a guilt from that. So anyway, like, yeah, I don't know if we kind of want to get into it, but music is, is such an important thing. And it's been such an important thing for us as, as friends. And I think that's part of the reason why the Latin mass has had such an impact on us too. It's that it's also the musical beauty of it that has captivated us. Yeah, it definitely has in our, um, our high mass. Like we have, we have some good music and I mean, we can toot our own horn and say, you know, we're in the scola, but on Sundays it's not us. We're just, uh, no in the pews, like regular Catholics and uh actively participating in the ordinary manner um <laughs> yes yes, so, yes. Did we get to that topic yet uh, not yet uh, premature <laughs> shots fired um but anyways yeah we have good music we like it yeah. but let's actually get back to the topic at hand so let's pointing out that chris did this rap is kind of like an extreme way to illustrate that exactly the argument that these two dudes have um, reading the uh, church documents. Um, I think it's musicum sacrum that they're focusing on. We, to some degree, were aware of parts of this, but mm-hmm. I, w- I was completely we, aware of it. I was yeah, completely back, aware of it. And back then we had a similar understanding i would say a faulty understanding of mm-hmm. those documents at that time yeah. and for the record it i would say like just to give us maybe maybe a little mercy here at the same time like no the- mercy <laughs> what do you think this is a christian podcast <laughs> <laughs> who do you think i am pope francis no <laughs> the- <laughs> The thing is, like, the people that were teaching people like me were handing me these documents and saying, Mm -hmm. hey, check this out, and giving me their own spin on it. And so when I was hearing this, and I was like, well, you guys are the experts, you guys are the ones that know better than me. I'm just a teenager. At that point, I was, what, 18, 19, like bordering 20. Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't know. Like, so, so at the same time, like, yeah, we had, I, 
was given documents and things like that, but it was, you don't really know until you start really digging uh, into, like, once you get a fuller understanding of even, even the documents of the Second Vatican Council as a whole, only mm-hmm. then can you really understand and interpret those pieces. Yeah, and even like a sense of the greater liturgical tradition of the church, it's the documents are written in such a way that some of that tradition is often assumed. And when you're looking at some of these choice quotes from uh, Musicum Sanctum and Sacrosanctum Concilium, um, it's very easy as a lay person who doesn't have a lot of background knowledge to read it and say, okay, um, what I'm doing is allowed and it's totally fine because it is vague enough that it's easy to read it as everything is allowed no matter what. Well, maybe not everything, but everything that has the, has a religious kind of feel to it. Right. Like, yeah. I mean, you can set some boundaries. Like, I mean, we don't, we got to give the dudes credit for saying, of course, they're not going to put in songs with like heresy and, you know, right. Right. Protestant theology and stuff like that. And honestly, that puts them ahead of a lot of Catholic music ministries. So props for that. But stuff like that isn't explicit even in the documents it's just assumed right right like it's kind of like common sense of course you don't sing songs with heretical lyrics at mass but um (laughs) it's vague enough that people can read it and still say well i like this song so i'm gonna sing it anyway it doesn't specifically say i can't sing folk songs so why can't I play this Marty Hagen song, even though it's completely heretical? Right. Just to pick on one example, because Marty Hagen deserves to be picked on. <laughs> um, All day, every day. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure the uh, two Catholic dudes are not playing Marty Hagen. No, no. But, yeah. For sure. But if you are, shame on you. Um, <laughs> oops, sorry. I'll go back to being charitable now. Uh, <laughs> so can I, uh, I want to kind of dive into some of the quotes from the dudes and yeah. discuss kind of how I reacted to them. Okay. Um, the start of this topic and well, one of the things they said towards the beginning where I was kind of like, oh boy, you know, it's getting spicy right off the, the top. Because <laughs> I think the quote they said was, yeah, your whole passion for the Lord and serving him, get that out of here. Mm. That was the quote. It was basically like the implication is if you're saying that modern praise and worship music isn't appropriate for mass, that's what you're saying to that music minister is you know, get your passion for the Lord out of here. You can't serve the Lord. Hmm. And I would say I do kind of understand the def- the defensiveness and the feeling behind it, but it's definitely a fallacy, right? Yeah. It's definitely a fallacy to say that 
if something doesn't belong in the mass, it's being disrespected or unfairly suppressed or that it can't be used to serve the Lord or the church in other ways. Yes. And something that kind of jumped out at me too is that kind of gut reaction to things in the mass is pretty common outside of music as well. Yes. You know, you kind of get the, if I can't play guitar at mass, I'm being excluded, but you also get, if I can't read the readings at mass, I'm being excluded. If I can't preach at mass, I'm being excluded. If I can't distribute Holy communion, I'm being excluded. If I can't be a priest, even though I'm a woman or I'm a married man, I'm being excluded. Right. You know? Yeah, it's true. It's true. There's a lot of that. That's a really good point. That's just to point out, it's like, you can serve the Lord in other ways than at mass. That's just a fact. So it's not logical to say that if that music actually isn't appropriate for mass, that the gifts that the Lord has given a person who's in music ministry are now useless or wasted or that, you know, the church doesn't want them or doesn't appreciate them. It's not true. Yeah. The, uh, the point you made in the last podcast to me, that was one of the biggest, um, home runs. <laughs> if I could, if I could say so, like that when you try to change the mass to suit the desires of others, it is not others that you've converted. It's the mass. And, I feel like that applies here too. You know, this is kind of the overarching understanding that mass doesn't need to fit into these categories of what makes me feel useful or what, or what in the mass can properly utilize my gifts, you know? Mm. And I think the more you, kind of come to grow in your love for the Lord in your uh in your own personal I'm going to say it in your own personal relationship with the, with Christ and with the church the more you realize that the church is far more broad than than just simply like you like I think they were even saying this in their podcast kind of as well that it's much more broad than just the mass so your gifts and your talents, those things that God has given you can fit, but it doesn't have to fit in the context of the liturgy, you know? And I think that's the whole purpose of things like the new evangelization and things like that. Um, things like the St. Catherine Institute, I think that's what it's called. Um, you know, you know, kind of figuring out what your your charisms and stuff are like it's not simply supposed to be at the service directly of the liturgy you know it there could be a million other things and a million other ways that your gifts can be utilized so what and that was that was a hard pill to swallow for me being like so my gifts as a worship leader i can't use those in mass but realizing like I can still worship God, you know, like I do still, I still find myself picking up my guitar at times, you know, at home or with others. 
and we'll sing some songs to the Lord. Is that a problem? It would be if the songs were heretical, you know, but I mean, yeah, you can still use those, those gifts, you know? Yeah. And especially in the context of um, like youth ministry and stuff like that, like you're not working in youth ministry anymore, but like if you're a youth minister and you're, you know, hanging out with people who are into this kind of music on a regular basis, if you're like having, I don't know, the equivalent of like life nights or whatever, <laughs> yeah, it's an appropriate place for this kind of thing. Now we've, we've theoretically talked about how, like, if the music wasn't appropriate for mass, it wouldn't mean you're excluded, but we haven't actually addressed in the, uh, the documents and stuff they quoted why or why not like it is or isn't allowed. Right. So maybe we should dig in a little deeper to the, the specific arguments there. Cause they, this was the one part where I felt like they had actually done some research, gone and got some sources to back up their position. So it invites a discussion that, take seriously their sources and gives a counterexample or counterargument, right? So the key quote I wanted to read that they brought up was um, Musicum Sanctum, um, paragraph nine. And I'll just read that out. It says, no kind of sacred music is prohibited from liturgical actions by the church as long as it corresponds to the spirit of the liturgical celebration itself. So keep track of these as long as is, because there's two main parts. Number one, as long as it corresponds to the spirit of the liturgical celebration itself and the nature of its individual parts, and two, and does not hinder the active participation of the people. Yeah, so that's, you know, those are on face value, pretty vague. And you can see how it's very easy to read that and say, oh, yeah, like, of course, my praise and worship music is completely corresponding to the spirit of the liturgy. And it's not hindering everyone, anyone, everyone's singing and clapping along and doing hand motions and, you know, (laughs) like riding on the clouds, shining like the sun and stuff. (laughs) So they're very actively participating. And, you know, it seems like a slam dunk. This uh, praise and worship music is good. (laughs) But I think we can dig in a little bit more to both of those parts, right? Yes. And we'll do that and then go into some of the other documents that kind of provide a counterpoint as well. So the spirit of the liturgy, it's not just a book by Pope Benedict. It's a thing that (laughs) exists in the church. Yes. I think the way to address this idea of like, what is the spirit of the liturgy? And is there an objective way to analyze if something is corresponding to the spirit of the liturgy is to go back to the purpose of the mass. We talked about this a little bit in the the part about is the mass about me what is it about we have to remember first and foremost what the mass is the sacrifice of the lord at calvary the crucifixion made present 
And, um, yeah, that's always going to be the foremost element of the mass and the foremost thing that sets the tone and the, um, the, I guess, character of the mass, Mm -hmm. the spirit of the the liturgy, so to speak. (laughs) Like if I could add, and maybe, maybe you were going to mention this too. One of the things that the, the two Catholic dudes mentioned was the importance of community, right? And how mass is not just about the Eucharist itself. Like it's not an isolated thing. It also involves the community and whatnot. And while we acknowledge that, yeah, the church is the body of Christ, Christ is the head and we are the members. Um, and you know, we are, you are united to him at the mass. Even if you look at, okay, in the catechism of the Catholic church, the current catechism, if you look in section 1322 to like 1419, okay, this is kind of the section, uh, around, the sacrament of the Eucharist. This is in the in the sacraments part of the catechism. If you look up the word community, okay, it mentions community three times. Okay. But if you look up the word sacrifice, <laughs> if you look up the word sacrifice, it says it 66 times. So that should give us an understanding of kind of the order of things that yes, we acknowledge that there is that communal element with one another, but, but it's far down on the list in terms of priorities. You know, we have to understand that sacrifice is the most important part of that, of the mass. Yeah. It's a, it's kind of a cool illustration, but like I was, I had this in my uh, notes as almost its own topic, but we didn't really get to that. Oh. Um, just the idea that um, trads don't care about tradition or they want us to all be in our own bubble, just focusing on ourselves and ignoring everyone else and, you know, stuff like that. And yeah, it's kind of an unfair characterization. Trads are often pushing back against community and saying like, you know, this guy's just talking about community. He's so Protestant or so effeminate or whatever, you know, and making memes about, <laughs> like, you know, all are welcome and stuff like yeah, that. Hand-holding and, at mass and things like that. Yeah. And really, it's not, at heart, it's not a, we hate fellowship and community or that's bad. It's a pushback against the overemphasis of community because the mass is about the sacrifice and worship of God. And like 73 items down the list is, you know, community and fellowship. But for whatever reason in a lot of Catholic circles, that fellowship is right up at the top and sacrifice is 73 levels down because we're embarrassed about it because that offends the Protestants or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, let me just 
this is kind of a tangent, but I have to tell the story. Like one time in university, a uh, Protestant friend came to mass with me and uh, I asked her what she thought after the mass. And she was like, oh, it was beautiful. And I was wondering like, and I still think this might've been like a talking point, but that's beside the point. She was like, I, I wonder why he kept saying it was a sacrifice. Wasn't there only one sacrifice, blah, blah, blah. And we all know as Catholics, we believe we're making present the one sacrifice of Christ during the mass. But uh, like I saw firsthand, it really is a stumbling block to Protestants calling the mass a sacrifice, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, maybe that's the reason it's 73 notches down in the uh, people who have too much emphasis on ecumenism, I guess. But it is in its proper place. That's what the mass is about. Sorry, maybe a side note too. This this is also why we see in terms of documents since the Second Vatican Council, a changing in terminology away from the word altar to table, right? For away from Eucharistic sacrifice to banquet or um, <laughs> feast or whatever. If you look even, I was just doing a little look on the catechism as well. If you look up table, it's mentioned 11 times, but if you look up altar, it's like over 20. But it's still like the word table was, you know, only really mentioned with regards to like the scriptures prior to Vatican II. The altar was never referred to as a table. Um, yeah, it was very rare to use that terminology. Right. And like primarily it was always, you know, the holy sacrifice of the mass and, you know, mm-hmm. the, as you said, the altar, like words that reference the sacrificial nature of the mass were way more common. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, but like when I read the scriptures, I don't, you don't really hear about a, a sacrificial table in the temple. It's just my thought, but yeah, it's kind of weird. I mean, there's to some extent, there's an element of it, but again, it's an overemphasis of the role of, the table at the last supper right. versus the altar of sacrifice, right? It's an overemphasis of one piece of the meaning over and above the one that we either don't want to <laughs> express or we want to suppress for some reason, something like that. It's yeah. a lack of understanding of even our Eucharistic theology, right? Like mm-hmm. that table that was in the upper room with the apostles or whatever, like that table (laughs) was essentially united to the cross. Like everything that happened at that table was united mystically to the work that Christ would do the following day. Yeah. In the same way the mass is right. Right. Exactly. It's the same thing. Yeah. So yeah, let's get back to before I forget. Let's get back to this quote from Musicum Sanctum. <laughs> so, is it, is it Musicum Sanctum or Musicum Sacrum? Oh, I wrote down Sanctum, but maybe is it Sacrum? Let me look it up. One eternity later, <laughs> I think it's Musicum Sacrum. Yeah, it is Musicum Sacrum. 
okay, well, I'm going to look stupid on the podcast, but <laughs> I typed it wrong in my notes. So that's just me. Too bad we can't uh, like go back and just like force fill every <laughs> musical song. Yeah, but. every time I say it, just have uh, some voice actor who sounds nothing <laughs> like me just record yeah. Sacrum. <laughs> <laughs> Or do it with like uh, a um, like a robot Microsoft like text yeah. to speech, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Musica sacra. <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of exploring the spirit of the liturgy. You know, there's the memeified version. If it doesn't belong at the foot of the cross, it doesn't belong in the mass. So this is just kind of like to open up the. the a little bit the meaning of the spirit of the liturgy in terms of that it's not saying anything goes far from it there's an actual there's an actual spirit to the liturgy that is proper to it that music should correspond to it's not just the spirit that happens to be there because it's a folk mass and so you know <laughs> it matches yeah. the mood that's there at that time. It's supposed to match the objective spirit of the liturgy. And then the second half of that is, and does not hinder the active participation of the people. So I think we touched on this on our last podcast. Maybe, maybe not. But the guys uh, talked about how active participation can be in the heart uniting to our prayers to God, but they also kind of talked about it in a sense where like, okay, that's cool if you're an introverted trad and you want to just unite your heart to God, but the rest of us are going to like do our thing and active participation is going to be like singing and blah, blah, blah. I think there's like something missing to this understanding of active participation because while there can be singing and physical movement and stuff, the part that is actually active participation is uniting ourselves to the prayers of the mass. If that's not there, it's not active participation. Even if you're running laps around the church, physical activity is not active participation. You know, I could be standing there mimicking all the moves the priest does at the mass, you know, doing my Oran's pose. <laughs> <laughs> holding hands and stuff but yeah if i'm not uniting myself inwardly to the prayers of the mass i'm not actively participating so in that understanding we have to be very careful mm -hmm. because suddenly i'm playing some upbeat praise and worship some hill song or something everyone's participating people are clapping people are doing hand motions people are you know getting all excited and active but are they is this music actually bringing them to unite their hearts with the prayers of the liturgy not so sure so we have to be very careful with this kind of thing like music that can actually hinder active participation by basically drawing people to actively participate in the music rather than the mass itself right Yep, couldn't agree more. The uh, it's funny because like even in both masses, right in both the Tridentine 
and the Novus Ordo. There is the direct command from the priest to lift up your hearts, right? Um, yeah. He doesn't say, lift up your voices, lift up your hands, you know, <laughs> just lift up your hearts. And, uh, and he says that even in a low mass, he says that in a daily mass in the chapel with no music, that, mm-hmm. that is the heart of active participation. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it, and that's why that's we it. say it is right and just, right? Like we can mm-hmm. say it from our hearts. It is right and just. Yeah, absolutely, dude. So um, maybe I should make sure I actually get the name of this church document right before I move on to the next quote. (laughs) (laughs) So hopefully I have this name right, even though I'm probably butchering Latin still. Um, So I have a couple quotes from Sacrosanctum Concilium. Okay. What is Sacrosanctum Concilium? That is the... Apostolic Constitution on the Liturgy, right? Yep. From the Second Vatican Council. Yeah. Yeah. So it's basically Musicum Sacrum, which we quoted from earlier, was a later document that was meant to clarify a couple things in the more authoritative document, which is Sacrosanctum Concilium from Vatican II. Right? I'm right. on base here. Okay. Yep. So two quotes from Sacrosanctum Concilium, the uh, dogmatic constitution on the liturgy from the Second Vatican Council. Oh, we got that part right. I don't need to repeat that. Okay. No. Um, so paragraph 112, it says, the musical tradition of the universal church is a treasure of inestimable value, greater even than any other art. So that quote I brought up in our previous podcast and that just kind of sets the tone for the stakes of uh, anything that changes or sets aside the musical tradition of the church. So essentially it's saying like, you know, if you're going to exclusively play modern music, watch yourself because you're setting aside um, the church's priceless works of art that are greater than anything, any other art that the church has, has created. Um, so, so set aside, step aside Michelangelo and like all the great artists of the church. The musical tradition is the real, the real deal in terms of art in the church. So to put that in perspective, because Gregorian chant is learnable by pretty much anyone. So you have access to it. Even we can do it. (laughs) Yeah. And that's uh, that's saying a lot. (laughs) uh, Even us former, um, you know, modern worship leaders learned Gregorian chant. We're in the Scola now. But this is kind of the metaphor that popped into my head is like, imagine your diocese has a historic church like Notre Dame and you decide, you know, Notre Dame's okay. There might be some documents that say it should have pride of place, but uh, we're not going to say mass there anymore. We're only going to do it in our uh, 
um, modern architecture buildings that we made in the last 60 years. Notre Dame can sit there and, you know, be a museum for people to pay to go through, but no more mass. That would be a crime, right? (laughs) That would be just offensive to Catholic tradition. Essentially what this is saying in uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium is that setting aside the church's treasure of Gregorian chant is even worse than letting a great church like Notre Dame or the Sistine Chapel fall into disuse and never having mass there. So moving on, four paragraphs down, we get the actual quote that addresses Gregorian chant directly, uh, paragraph 116. This is a little bit longer of a a quote. I'm just going to read the whole thing. The church acknowledges Gregorian chant as specially suited to the Roman liturgy. Therefore, other things being equal, it should be given pride of place in liturgical services. But other kinds of sacred music, especially polyphony, are by no means excluded from liturgical celebrations, so long as they accord with the spirit of the liturgical action. So yeah, Gregorian chant, given is specially suited to the Roman liturgy. No other type of music has that distinction, right? Not just that it's specifically suited to worship itself, but even the Roman liturgy in particular. Like, uh, you know, Eastern Christians have different musical traditions in their divine liturgies, but the Western church, the Roman liturgy has always had Gregorian chant. Well, not always, but since, um, Gregory, <laughs> yeah. Pope Gregory, the great, if I can maybe add to that too, this is also reiterated in the general instruction for the Roman missile. The gentleman in the podcast, uh, said they didn't know where, the list of approved instruments was, that's where you're going to go to find that. Okay. But in section 41, it reiterates again, and this is what priests are required to follow with regards to the liturgy, right? So it mentions that all things being equal, Gregorian chant holds pride of place. Goes on to say in section 41, since faithful from different countries come together ever more frequently, it is fitting that they know how to sing together at least some parts of the ordinary of the Mass in Latin, especially the Creed and the Lord's Prayer, set to the simpler melodies. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but almost every time I go to a different diocese, I have no idea. Like if I'm attending a Novus Ordo Mass, I have no idea what the setting is. Like, yeah. no clue. I know what the words are, you know, if I'm in an English speaking place, but I don't know what the tone is. I, I, yeah. Whereas in the Latin Mass, whether I'm in St. Thomas, Ontario, Canada, or I'm in Toronto, or I'm in Chicago, or I'm in Detroit, I know what I'm singing. Yeah, and it's the same even if you're, you know, in Tokyo. Yeah. If you're if you can find a Latin mass over there. Yeah. But that's beside the point. You can. Uh, but it's crazy. Like yeah. and 
and how I don't know about you, but that in particular, that experience for me has been incredibly freeing that I go to a, to a high mass wherever, if it's in the uh, extraordinary form or the, the traditional Latin mass. And I'm like, yeah, I know what I'm doing. I know where I'm at and I can actually participate, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Again, you can, you can follow the mass a lot better, right? Like that active participation doesn't necessarily require you to know the words or the tune or anything like that, but it's nice. <laughs> I, I was watching a video recently of the, uh, the American bishops that had their ad limina visit with the Holy Father. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so they're in Rome, they're all together. Bishop Strickland was among them. And, uh, yeah. And it shows them in, I don't know which crypt it was, but they were singing. And what were they singing? Credo three. <laughs> they all know it. <laughs> yeah. You know, and you know what? Maybe I'm judging unfairly, but most Catholics in the world and probably the dudes from two Catholic dudes podcast are like Credo three. I thought there was only one creed or well two the apostles and nicene creed yeah but we're talking about the third musical setting of the nicene creed yeah at mass Um. no i just i just find it interesting and the fact like that in rome they still even with their novus ordos i mean if you're looking for the unicorn novus ordo they're pretty much it in a big way but yeah they they follow the latin responses there you know, in the Vatican, they still do that. Um, yeah. So one thing I wanted to note, it's pretty obvious in that quote and in the general instruction that Gregorian chant is supposed to have pride of place. We'll come back to that and hammer it even more probably. But I wanted to note in that quote from Sacrosanctum Concilium that sacred polyphony is actually singled out and basically given a second place position after Gregorian chant. And in your modern Novus Ordo and especially your youth mass, polyphony is just as non-existent as Gregorian chant. And maybe it's just me, but I wasn't able to find any ranking of where Hillsong or Hagenhaz fits on the list. Like, are they like number three after polyphony or, you know, I don't know. It's not specified. <laughs> no. And, and, and again, like if the church didn't mean it, she, you know, you know, like they say, like with regards to scripture, like if Jesus repeats it multiple times, he means it. And it's the same with the church. Right. So if she says it in Sacrosanctum Concilium and then, in the general instruction of the Roman Missal says again, other types of sacred music in particular polyphony, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, they're not being metaphorical. It's just like John six. Yeah. <laughs> they're saying it again and again, because they literally want you to sing Gregorian chant at mass. Mm-hmm. And to some people that might be as offensive as, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. 
It's true. Cause it's, I mean, it's true. This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Who can? Yeah. It's, it's legitimately tough to learn polyphony and it's legitimately tough to learn Gregorian chant, especially if you're mm-hmm. used to G, C, D, E minor, capo six. Yeah. Like, <laughs> let's charitably uh, assume that these guys have more skill than that, but still. Well, <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, jacked youth minister dudes ripping on his Gibson FG. So, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. But that's the thing. It is, it is a difficult thing, even practically speaking, even for a music leader to be like, okay, choir, let's, let's do this. We're going to, we're going to change it up a little bit. But to me, the question is, and again, this was a gut check for me is, am I going to give him my best or my third best? Am I going to be obedient to the church he founded? Because this is what she asks. You know, the boys and the Catholic dudes said, you know, well, it all of this is allowed. But not only is it allowed, like they have made specifications and they've said, but this, this is important. This is what needs to happen. This needs to be given pride of place, right? But... Yeah, I mean, it, it's a question that has to be asked, right? Like, it's kind of a contra, uh, a confrontational way of saying it, I guess. But if you're quoting these documents and you believe they are authoritative and need to be followed, ask yourself why Gregorian chant doesn't have pride of place in your parish or in your mass. Or generally. Why, I mean, we don't know. Yeah how and what their mass is like. But I mean, I can speak in particular to, I know what his Psalm responses are like because he shares those on uh, Instagram and man, he is Ryan talented as all get out, man. That guy is, he's got a stellar voice and he's incredibly uh, talented at the piano, like just amazing. But, but I don't see him doing, okay, this week we're going to share a Gregorian chant we've been working on, you know? So take that as a challenge. Maybe we can move on from the music topic now. Yeah. Now that we're an hour and five minutes in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we can kind of quickly address the uh, other issues, I think. Yeah. Pretty quick. Um, yeah. So maybe I'll talk about the mic drop argument. Yes. That's kind of a, we a don't, quick one to... We just, just public service announcement. We don't believe in dropping Mike. He's here to stay. Aw, oh, thanks, dude. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> also, if you want to drop Mike, though, just for the record, do it from a really high up. He will love it. <laughs> It's not true. <laughs> <laughs> Mike is scared of heights. <laughs> yeah, my secret's out, and I'm afraid of heights. <laughs> so, yeah, this is just like a quick one to respond to. The uh, two Catholic dudes mentioned that's always the mic drop argument, right? The uh, fact that Jesus is present at the Mass. 
and the consecration is valid. It's a mass. And that informs a lot of things like saying like, you can't say you hate the Novus Ordo. You can't, uh, you know, say it's not as good as the traditional Latin mass even because Jesus is there. How can you say it's not as good? Uh, on some level, yeah, it makes sense because the sacrifice of Jesus is one and the same. And that part has an objective quality that cannot be greater or lesser. But that's not the entirety of the parts of the Mass, right? And I would say to answer it in a, the, <laughs> to answer it like St. Thomas, I would say on the contrary, the true presence is actually why inadequate liturgy is even more worthy of criticism, right? Because our Lord is truly present, even the tiniest defect or imperfection or something that's not quite as good in the mass is a serious issue. Even if, you know, one of the least important parts of the mass is changed and made worse, that's terrible. This is our Lord we're talking about, the most Im important and highest worship of God who is truly present. That's why when you see the vast amount of changes and the vast array of ways the liturgy was cut up and made worse, it makes sense to say this liturgy is worse. And even I hate the fact that it was made worse. I hate the way it is because these things could be better and our Lord deserves them to be better. Mm -hmm. So that's the perspective there from me. Like it probably sounds like trads are just being insane, mean trolls if they say something like that, but there is a perspective behind it. I think that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And coming back to what we were saying in the previous episode, any trad that's worth their salt. Okay will admit to you that the reason why they may quote-unquote hate the Novus Ordo or dislike the Novus Ordo is because they love him. They love Christ. It's driven by that. Again, when you have someone in your life, and this applies even just at a human level, when you have someone in your life that you love, you want the best for them. You know? I just, I just had... My wife just gave birth to our, you know, our third child, my my first uh, here on the earth, and like John is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen, and I want to, I would like, I would tear down heaven if I could to give it to him. Like that's how much I love him, but like my love for God should logically be more. And like, if I see him being mistreated and abused, as we've talked about, we've talked about the abuses with regards to communion in the hand and the particles and stuff. When you see that kind of stuff, you go like, yeah, yeah, this is not good. And we want to, I want to see him loved, not mistreated. So anyway, that's just my, my side note, but I, I just, again, we need to keep that mindset that trads love Jesus. We do. 
Yeah. Like, That's why we love tradition. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. yeah. What else should we talk about before we run out of time? Do you want to do the, uh, Oh, um, I want to talk about the councils thing. Yes. Real quick. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, if anything at all was wrong with the liturgy, they'd just call a council and they'd fix it. <laughs> just like they did with the uh, English translations. There's many things to note here. <laughs> First of all, the example of the English translations. A lot of the examples they gave as stuff that was allowed before was actually never allowed. Like just making up arbitrary lyrics to <laughs> the Lamb of God. The Agnew Stay. Um, the yeah, Agnew thanks, Stay. Matt Marr. Just yeah. saying, right? That was a straight up liturgical abuse, Matt Marr. A liturgical uh, oof. <laughs> yep. But yeah, that actually illustrates the exact opposite because the English translation of the Mass was obviously terribly defective and it took 50 years for them to correct it. 50 years. Do I even need to, like, okay, let's continue the uh, <laughs> argument against this because there's one other point. We know there are bishops and many of them that are doing a bad job at very important things. To me, when I hear if there was something wrong, they would obviously correct it right away. It sounds as crazy as saying, if a priest was abusing a kid, they would obviously stop it right away. Or, you know, if the Vatican bank was laundering funds, <laughs> they would obviously correct it right right away or if yeah, there call, was they'd have to call a council they would do but they could just do that they could just call all the bishops to rome for a formal council to rectify these issues because that's how they do it yeah. right and i mean it's just ridiculous that's just not how anything works <laughs> yeah no i mean the crisis of the liturgy is an issue that's worthy of calling a council to correct, but hasn't been done. And uh, in fact, the last time they called a council was when they caused the problem. So I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, like it just makes no sense. No, no. Oh, the other thing they said about councils that I wanted to reply to was the uh, that's why we have councils because times change. Oof, man. Yeah. Not a, not a proper understanding of how the church has used councils in the past. Yeah. Councils have always been to clarify the faith against a common heresy. Or has there even really been a reason other than that? Like, like Trent was in response to the Protestant Reformation, right? Yeah. I mean, what Council of Jerusalem was to respond to the Gentile thing, right? Yeah. So they weren't they weren't ever changing really anything that the church believed. Yeah, it's quite the opposite, right? They never called a council to adapt to the times. They called a council to harden the church against the times. You know? Yeah. They called a council to rebuke the heresy of the times and specify things and um, make dogmatic pronouncements to crush these heresies. 
it also needs to be stated just because we're trads that the second Vatican council was not dogmatic in its nature, but that's just didn't make any dogmatic statements. Yeah. They have a specific formula, which you can see in basically all the other councils. Right. Yeah. Right. So, Hey, do you want to do the uh, walking out of mass story? Just to sure. like end with a slam dunk. Sure. Or I don't know. Maybe it's not a slam dunk, just the yeah. story. So maybe maybe we can kind of put a couple things together. Right. So I, one of the things that um was said was uh, that the that the guys were talking about one of the things that they had seen mentioned to them in memes and things were things like the Novus Ordo sends people to hell. The Latin Mass has less sinners. Anyway, things like that. So, again, context is really important. So, in my example, this was probably, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago? Maybe? Maybe? Yeah. Um, and at that time, I was noticing, like, my family and I had begun kneeling to receive the Eucharist on the tongue. Now we were attending a Novus Ordo parish in our diocese. And, you know, we were attending there every week and the priest at every mass that we would go to when he was distributing Holy communion, when we would get up to him and kneel to receive, we weren't, we weren't causing a scene. We weren't doing anything. We just, you know, knelt down real quick to receive on the tongue. He would take the host and shove it in our mouth and say, body of Christ, no need to kneel. And like, we'd get up and go back to our seat. And this was happening, happening week after week after week. And this was the, the good parish. Okay. This was the quote unquote, you know, most traditional parish in the area. And we then, yeah, we then attended the Mass on Corpus Christi, on the Feast of Corpus Christi uh, in the new calendar. And we were sitting there, and during the homily, the priest says essentially that all Eucharistic piety, traditional Eucharistic piety, is worthless. The church has moved away from that. It does not deserve this. We're adults. And so kneeling, uh, Eucharistic adoration, these things, get rid of them. We don't need them anymore. The church has moved on. Uh, at that point, after weeks of being having the, the Eucharist shoved in our mouths and being uh, scolded uh, in the communion line, and now hearing that our Lord res- does not receive any... F- doesn't deserve to receive any forms of piety, we stood up and left. Was I abandoning our Lord? No. I went to Mass later that night at another parish, at a life teen parish, actually. Um, it was a lot more difficult than I realized it would be. But, yeah. I mean, so yeah. Again, it's because we love our Lord that we that we protest those kinds of things. I'm not saying just get up at the drop of a hat, you know, but you know, if there is 
something sacrilegious being said or or something blasphemous being said, yeah, leave. <laughs> you have no obligation to stay at that mass, especially if you are, you know, if you have options to go to another mass elsewhere. So, yeah, I mean, notwithstanding the uh, obligation to attend mass in general, right? You don't have any obligation to stay at that particular mass, right? Yeah, and yeah, it can be an important witness to not sit and accept a blasphemy like that from the pulpit. I think, yeah, um, I've never had the. I've never been in that situation where I've felt I had to do that, but I mean, I've never heard something as terrible as that No, from the pulpit at a, a mass. And frankly, if you have kind of a traditional understanding of the liturgy, the homily is not part of the mass. So like I've heard it said, you can stand up and protest verbally at that point because it's not technically the mass you know it's the it's the in between i mean i don't necessarily encourage that because they don't listen that way they never do um yeah i recommend speaking to the the priest one on one afterwards by a phone via phone or have a meeting with him if he doesn't listen call the bishop you know yeah. Like that's, that's all you can do. I know you said it kind of quickly, but the, uh, the thing about the homily technically being outside of the mass was kind of a mind blowing thing. And I didn't know about that until very recently. That's why it's kind of a minor detail, but yeah, we mentioned that in the, uh, liturgical breakdown, how, when the priest removes the maniple, right, that's a sign that masses on hold actually and and another clarification too maybe i'll throw this into the actual liturgical breakdown too is that in the pre-55 missile the the actual chasuble is taken off and laid on the altar and then the priest goes gives us homily and then he comes back and puts it back on yeah i mean that totally makes it really obvious that the mass is on hold yeah Hmm. Neato. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, at the end of the day, we hope that this is kind of just a starting point uh, for consideration for you gentlemen and for anyone who thinks that the Novus Ordo and the Latin Mass are equal in dignity. (laughs) Um, Equal in quality. Equal in quality. Yeah. That it's a both and kind of thing. Yeah. It should be discussed and like it needs to be discussed honestly and with with clarity and also with charity and also with clarity. That's what yep. I meant to say. Not just with memes, although I love laughing at a good meme. <laughs> like, yeah, that's it's a you, you know, you can kind of like laugh at dunking on the other side with a meme, but that's not how you discuss and get to the truth. Right. We have to lay out the logic behind these positions and actually examine it. So, yeah. And I would say take the time to go to the Latin Mass, go to the Divine Liturgy, 
uh, of St. John Chrysostom, take some time away from the Novus Ordo to be able to see the difference. And I understand that that might be difficult, especially if you're employed as a weekly worship leader at a parish, but you won't regret it. And take the time to do the research on your own and, and read scholarly works. We heard you talk about Taylor Marshall and Timothy Gordon. If that's not your cup of tea, fine. They're, they're not the face of traditionalism, okay? They're not. Um, the Mass is the face of traditionalism. So yeah. let that speak for itself. Our Lord is the face of traditionalism. <laughs> yeah. Deal um, with it. Yeah. And look, look up, <laughs> I would say, check out people like Dr. Peter Kwasniewski. He's got a lot of fantastic talks on uh, on YouTube and on SoundCloud and things like that. A fantastic book is uh, Noble Beauty, Transcendent Holiness. Um, why um, the new evangel something like why the new evangelization needs the mass of the ages. A fantastic book, like just a yeah, just a slam dunk book. You know, everything is becoming a slam dunk now since we talked about the uh, slam dunk valid consecration thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, we need yeah. some new metaphors. <laughs> if yeah, only I, we knew things about sports. Yeah, make a goal, you're a basket. <laughs> go, my favorite sports team. Go. Um, yeah. Do you have any other recommendations for things for people who may? kind of want to get their feet wet and just kind of see what the hype is about? Um, Just to find out about the Latin Mass. Um, The book I'm using for a liturgical breakdown is pretty good for going through the parts of the Mass and the meaning behind them. This is a a pre-Vatican II just book about the Mass, so it's not about comparing. It's just a book about the meaning of the Mass and its parts but it really does show a lot of stuff that's been forgotten about the mass this is um monsignor mormon's uh, the latin mass explained that's the title it's published under now it was previously just i think it was just the mass explained but uh, (laughs) yeah there's another book right now that's really popular which is called treasure and tradition um, I don't know if you've seen much about that book, but uh, it's actually cool story. There was a, a lady who, one of the people that made it, decided that during, I don't know what it was, like some synod recently in Rome, that she would go and she would have printed like 3,000 copies of this book, which is all about the traditional Latin mass. Uh, she changed the title to it, but it's the same stuff on the inside. And she just she went to Rome, her and this other lady, and distributed this book all over Rome during the synod. And like, yeah, I, I mean, people are so passionate about this, and the numbers don't lie. You know, the number of vocations is through the roof. In traditional seminaries, the number of vocations coming out of traditional parishes are like exponentially higher 
Then in Nova Sordo parishes, yeah, like the number of young families that are coming in, much higher. It, there's mm-hmm. there was that that survey that was done, um, and it showed like you know the number of Catholics that don't use contraception. Yeah, it's like it's staggering, and yeah, to some extent in our current climate of the church, you can you can have the devil's advocate argument that someone who takes the faith seriously enough to seek out a Latin mass is probably going to be someone who's practicing all the moral teachings of the faith. But I do think there is an element of the faith being taught and expressed better in its traditional liturgies too. So, yeah. And not all traditional Catholics are part of the the SSBX just for the record if you think that some some people do <laughs> or think yeah. that we're set of a contus and think that the holy father pope francis is not current the current reigning pontiff or you know or that we're set of beneplenists or or benevacontus as it's wrongfully called those are all real things but they're not us <laughs> yeah. yeah so yeah take time to look it up like don't take our word for it come and see we're just two catholic dudes so don't trust us yeah (laughs) true come and see anyways yeah yeah so mike tell us where the good people can find us yeah so uh instagram theology of the buddy and facebook also theology of the buddy and then our uh weird sibling in the social media family is twitter at trad friends because theology of the buddy is too long for twitter <laughs> wah, wah. <laughs> wah, wah. Yep. yeah so. follow us and let us know what you think about our episodes because we'd love to chat with you sure for sure a uh, big shout out uh goes out to the tomasi and crusader who shared out our uh asparagus may uh podcast earlier this week and uh yeah a lot of people came over from from their side to uh check us out and uh, we really appreciated that so uh tomasi and crusader whoever you are we love you <laughs> and uh keep the anime trad memes coming we do we do love them and appreciate them keep them flowing we can't get through the day without them (laughs) yes (laughs) yes okay well mike good times thanks for doing this good good. times (laughs) all right yes there's nothing else left to say except Stay Stay tratty. tratty.